0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Ezra in your Old Testament. Last week, we finished both the epistle of Hebrews and our study through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're like me and you didn't grow up in church, you may have some difficulty learning the books of the Bible. So Ezra comes kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra. So kind of in between Psalms and uh, those books there, you'll find Ezra. In your black ESV Pew Bible, you're going to be on page 389. So that may help you get there. My kids are young and they like learn the songs of the books of the Bible and all those things. Well, I grew up as an adult and like in seminary, we didn't sit around and sing children's songs. So some of those things have been difficult for me to learn over the years. What I want to talk to you about this morning is a sermon or a text that's dealing with the faithfulness of God coming from Ezra chapter one, verses one through 11. I have to tell you, I got very excited and studying and preparing this week and as Aaron often warns with you of his sermons, I have quite a lot of material to share with you. So we'll see what we get through. Let us pray and then let us consider our text. Uh, Father God, Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness, God. Even in the midst of our faults and our failures and our unfaithfulness, God, you remain faithful. God, we thank you for this time in particular, even of this service, Father, that you've allowed and carved out for us to study from your word. God, we admit and confess our utter dependency upon you in this time and reading it and preaching it and teaching it, Father, understanding it and comprehending it, God, because of our sinfulness, Father, we, we are darkened to it. its truth, Father. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of your word to our hearts and to our minds, God, that you would do what only you can do and apply these truths to our hearts and to our lives, God, we need you now in this time. Uh, Father, we, we know that you will be faithful in this time. God's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, the word of God reads, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. All those who... And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 39 censures, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. And these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought out from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, you may be here today, and you've been struggling in your faith. You've been struggling in understanding maybe the purposes of God In your life. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling to understand losses in your family or friends and setbacks. You may be struggling in your job and marriages and friendships with loved ones that you care so deeply about, yet they remain separated from the love of God. You may be asking yourself and God this morning, like, how in the world will I ever overcome the temptations which I am facing on a daily basis? In the midst of the chaos that is this world that we live in, whether it be the deep divisions that are exposed in this nation, the civil unrest that we see in nations in the news around the globe every night, radical Islamic terrorism, insane dictators in nations like Syria and North Korea, whatever it may be, like you may find yourself this morning in some sort of struggle. You may find yourself this morning genuinely asking God, like, God, what is going on? Like, God, do you hear my prayers? God, are you truly in control of the world in which I live in? Like, God, are you, are you truly sovereign? Are, are you truly providential? Are you actually preserving a people for yourself? And all the talk that I hear about the decline of the church and the fall of Christianity. I'm reminded of a quote from W.A. Criswell. who said this, when a man comes to church, actually what he is saying to you is this. Preacher, I know what the TV commentator has to say. I hear him every day. I know what the editorial writer has to say. I read it every day. I know what the magazines have to say. I read them every week. Preacher, what I want to know is, does God have anything to say? And if God has anything to say, tell us what it is. A friend of mine shared that this week and it struck me in the context of this passage because the reality is that your mere presence here speaks volumes about your desire to hear from the word of God. As I've just read to you from Ezra chapter 1, you may be thinking to yourself, like, what in the world... Do decrees from Persian kings and a list of pots and pans and bowls have to do with my walk and my relationship with God? Like, like I'm struggling. I, I need to hear from God. Well, let me just tell you that this chapter has everything to do with your faith and your relationship to God. Every single detail that is penned in Ezra chapter 1 speaks to the faithfulness of God. It speaks, to, it speaks to the faithfulness of God to sovereignly and providentially rule and govern His creation. It speaks to the faithfulness of God to keep His promises and His word, even in the most difficult, trying, and darkest times. It speaks to the faithfulness of God to preserve a people for Himself and to Himself who will be marked out not because of their clever ways and their pragmatic designs, but because this worship of God is the central figure of their lives. See, this chapter speaks way more to us than simply a Persian king's decrees and a list of bowls and pots and pans. This chapter paints a beautiful picture within the tapestry of historical theology and redemptive history of the unceasing, unrelenting faithfulness of the God of Scripture to his people, to his promises, and to his word. I'm reminded of Paul's words to Timothy. He writes to him in First Timothy, if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, it's part of God's nature to be faithful. It's part of his immutable attributes that he is faithful, even in the midst of both Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. Even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And Paul's reasoning in that is that God cannot deny himself. By nature, he is a faithful God. So as we look at this text, the first aspect of God's faithfulness that I want us to see is the faithfulness of God to sovereignly and providentially rule over and govern his creation a rather lengthy point. Every point that I have is almost a paragraph this morning. I guess I'm pulling from the Puritans. I don't know, but simplify it. Let's look at God's sovereignty and providence over creation. So to begin to study this book, it's important to us to have a working knowledge of the redemptive history as to where we're at. Ezra picks up in the darkest time in the history of the people of God. Judah and Jerusalem have been conquered by Babylon and Assyria, respectively. In Babylon, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, has come in and taken over Judah. The very best of their population has been carried off into Babylonian exile. The holy city of God, Jerusalem, has been utterly destroyed. The temple demolished. The walls are in ruins. For the better part of 70 years, the people of God have been unable to bring appropriate worship to God. I don't know if we understand this when they're in babylonian captivity they cannot offer atonement for their sins they cannot worship god according to how god has called for them to worship god in a sense they have been separated from god they have been unable to make proper sacrifices the promised land for them in this time of history begins to look like a broken promise an entire generation has been exiled it's been carried away it's been separated from the proper worship of god and in all this time Hope is lost. Despair has set in. And these Jews are quite likely pondering the same questions that we thought about earlier. Like, God, do you even hear us? God, are you really in control? God, do you keep your promises? God, do you hold true to your word? If you want to get an idea this time, I would encourage you to go back and read Lamentations and go to redeemer.org and look at the rbcgulfport.org and look at the Listen to the sermons that Aaron preached through Lamentations. Those are laments during this time in Israel's history. And we get a feeling of the suffering and pain and distress that these people were experiencing. So that's kind of where we're at here. And to take kind of a macro look at redemptive history just briefly, if you want to take a note and draw out a timeline, you can hang these kind of important points of history on them. If we hold to a strict dating of the Bible, we find ourselves that the events, the events of Genesis 1 through 3 happening around 4,000 BC or just about 6,000 years ago. Now, look, if you're not a young earth guy like I am, like don't get your, your whatever in a wad over the fact that, that I'm a young earth guy. Like, like, We can talk about that later. We can debate that. But just for the sake of just getting us a timeline history so we can see like where we're at here, let's just say 4,000 BC, 6,000 years ago, Genesis chapter 1. We would date the calling of Abraham between 2100 B.C. and 1900 B.C. Of course, there's debates on all of these dates. The Exodus, when God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, can be dated around 1446 B.C. Then they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness before entering into Canaan. David reigned in his time around 1000 B.C. After Solomon dies, the 12 tribes split into Two tribes. We have 10 tribes in the north that make up Israel. We have two tribes in the south that make up Judah. God in his sovereignty allows for, or actually, God in his sovereignty raises up Assyria to rise to power and destroy the northern kingdom in 721 BC. By God's grace, the southern kingdom, Judah, sustains for just a little while longer, more than 100 years than its northern counterparts. And then they, too, had fallen to rampant idolatry and unrepentant sin. And God in his sovereignty allows for Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, to raise up to be the world's superpower and to take Judah over. The first exiles are taken into Babylonian captivity in 605 BC. So as you see, our timeline is moving along, leading us up to where we're at now. And the temple walls in Jerusalem and the temple were utterly destroyed and only the very poorest were left behind. When Judah fell in 586 B.C. It's interesting for us to note that Daniel was taken into Babylonian captivity in 605 B.C. And that Jeremiah in the same time had been prophesying that God would do this. And for 70 years, the people of God would be in exile. And then we could date the events of Daniel chapter 5 verses or chapter 5 through chapter 9 really at about 539 B.C. The handwriting on the wall event and the fall of Belshazzar. And we read in Daniel 9, and this is fascinating because it's in the midst of this captivity that Daniel has somehow come across Jeremiah's teachings. And he's reading Jeremiah's writings and his hope and the sovereign purposes of God are found in this promise that God has made through Jeremiah that this captivity would only last for 70 years. And so around eighty five thirty nine, we find Daniel on his face crying out to God, praying in Daniel chapter 9, hoping in God praying and fasting for mercy and the repentance of his people. So it is in 539 that God raises up a new kingdom, the Persians, to overtake Babylon and a new king, Cyrus. And so what I want us to see is that God has been sovereign over all of this. Like, yes, that's the macro picture of redemptive history that shows us like where we're at here in this day in Ezra chapter 1. But the reality of it and the beautiful thing is that God has been sovereign over all of it. He's been providentially working through creation through this whole timeline of history to bring about and to govern about these events that unfold in chapter 1 of Ezra. It's amazing that even down to the very name of the pagan king that he would raise up to free his people, God has been in control of these events. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to them to Isaiah 44 through Or 44.28, and you can read a little bit more into 45, because I want you to see this, that God's been working in this. So 44.28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. I hear pages turning, so I'll work patiently with you. So this prophecy from Isaiah, roughly over a hundred years before the prophecies of Jeremiah even come. the prophecies of Jeremiah coming before Babylon takes over. So we have Cyrus named in 44:28. Who says of Cyrus? Here's God speaking of Cyrus, this Persian pagan king, He is my shepherd, He shall fulfill my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse one, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of Kings, to open doors before him, that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness in the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. This is God speaking of Cyrus, the Persian king that he will raise up. You can look down at 45 and verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children in the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. God speaking of his sovereignty in the events of these things. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, speaking of Cyrus here, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Like Clearly we can see a Christological theme in that, no doubt. This prophecy also pertains to this Prussian king, Persian king that God has raised up. I want us to see this, that this all has been God's sovereign plan to prove his faithfulness to his people. And this is what we see playing out in Ezra chapter one. Look at verse one. that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Prussia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's God who stirs up Cyrus' heart, Cyrus's will, Cyrus's spirit to do what it is that God has purposed for him to do. This is the behavior that's extremely familiar to us of God. We see God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus to bring about God's purposes. We see in Deuteronomy 2 that God hardens the spirit of Shion, king of Heshbon, and made his heart obstinate. God hardens Nebuchadnezzar's spirit in Daniel chapter 5 leading to his fall. And here in Ezra, as prophesied in Isaiah 45, God stirs up the heart of Cyrus to benefit his people and to bring about his will. Which leads to the proclamation in 2 through 4. I want you to just listen to the sovereignty of God expressed in this Persian king's proclamation, and his decree. This says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, this is a pagan king, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Acknowledging the sovereignty of this God who has given to him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with the goods and the beast, besides freewill offerings from the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So it's God's sovereignty that leads to this. It's the God of the Jews who gave him all the kingdom. It's the God of the Jews who charged him in this new exodus. I want you to see how careful the word of God is to express the sovereign purposes of God and God's faithfulness to his sovereignty and to his providence in these verses. God is saying here that I am in control of absolutely everything. All of history is my history. All of the kingdoms of this earth bend and beckon to my will. All the kings on this earth are instruments in my hands. Like this is reminiscence of Proverbs 21.1 where we read, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever he wills. Here, God is saying that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is not in control. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is not in control. He's saying here that even Cyrus, who ushered in this decree that brought about this new exodus, is not in control. And, and no dictator, and no president, and no political leader today is in control. Here in Ezra 1, God is saying that I am in control in, over all creation and over all history. We see this play out again in verse five, then rose up the heads of the fathers, the houses of Judah and Benjamin. This will play itself out in the coming weeks. And we'll look at it in a moment as well. But it's interesting that these two people groups, these two tribes are the ones that were exiled. And they're also the ones that come back. There's a continuation of God's people. It's a promise that God makes, which we're going to look at in a minute. If we have time. So then rose up the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go. It's fascinating to think that who goes? Like, who makes... The Exodus back, who leads from Babylon back to Jerusalem. We would, we would think in our minds and our hearts, that, well, of course, everyone went, but not everyone goes. This is what we read of in verse four, like, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place. Not everyone goes. Some of the Jews have found themselves comforted in Babylon. They have businesses and families and they've planted roots and they're gonna stick around. The ones that go back are the ones that God sovereignly stirs up their hearts to go back. And it's reminiscent of Gideon and his whittled-down army that God uses a remnant of a remnant to rebuild his city, to rebuild his temple and his walls here. You see, God is in control of all of this. Yes, Cyrus did it. Yes, these select few went back. But it was God's will. God did it. Now, just consider for a moment, if God has been in control of everything that we've just spoken about from 4,000 B.C. until now, towards the very end of the Old Testament. I mean, it's just another 150, 200 years or so that we see God go silent in the Old Testament. If God's been in control of all of this, if God has controlled the aspirations, desires, and wants, and wills of pagan kings to bring about his will, how much more so do we think that God would be in control of every minute detail of our lives? All of the little things that may be pleading for our concentration that we may be struggling with today that we may be tempted by. Like we need to know this morning that God is in total and absolute control of absolutely everything. He's proved it in these verses. He's proved it in history. God's also proved it for us that are Christians in saving us. I mean, God's salvation of us is a sovereign act that he brings about. It's monergistic. We can think back if we're ever questioning the sovereignty of God and say, God, you saved me. Like proof positive you are sovereign and you are in control so we see that god's sovereign he's providential he's faithful to those things so if god is sovereign over history as we've seen we must also recognize that a part of god's faithfulness to his sovereignty and his providential rule over creation to govern it is also that god is faithful to keep his promises and to keep his word even in the midst of the most difficult darkest and trying of times you see, God made a promise to Judah. We see this promise made by God to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29. And you can turn over there if you want. In your pew Bible, you'll be on page uh, 656. And I'm going to look at Jeremiah 29, 11. I was sharing with them last night. Like, if there is a passage in scripture that is blown out of context more than this one, like, I don't know. Like, maybe Philippians four thirteen, But every May... All of the paraphernalia that you will find in Lifeway in every single Christian bookstore or retailer will be plastered with Jeremiah 29, 11. And I think to myself, like, goodness gracious, like, how bad of a graduating class would this be that we would call for them to have this much suffering? And I, and, and I think to myself, like, man, like, we, we need to get the context here. I, I know that my class was bad, but, man, we seem to wish upon people more suffering than they would ever desire. Here's the promise from God to Judah. Because of your unrepentant idolatry, I am going to raise up Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple, my house, the means by which you worship me. I'm going to use him to carry away the very best of you into exile. And an entire generation will be separated from the promised land. They'll be separated from the worship of God. They'll be separated from the ability to offer sacrifice for me on the day of atonement for sins. Your suffering will be great and it will be immense. Like that's the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. That we just leave out and we just plaster that one verse on everything that we own. But the promise is wonderful. Because the promise ends with, but I will not forget you. That that I actually do have plans for you. We could pick up in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This is what Daniel comes across in Daniel chapter 9. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find you. Find me. When you seek me with your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. And all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You could also go to Jeremiah 51 and read of that in your free time and see this promise being fulfilled but the point of ezra is that god has done all that he has done to prove his faithfulness to his promise this is the god that we serve a promise making and promise keeping god who will move heaven and earth who will build empires and destroy kingdoms to keep his promise this is what the people of judah needed to hear i mean lord knows what they are going back to like everything has been destroyed. Everything is in ruins. Only the poorest of the poor remain behind seeking to scrape by farming lands. They need to be reminded that God was faithful to keep his promises. I mean, consider these words that we just read in Jeremiah. As they're going back, they're thinking, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me. And now, after 70 years of seeking me, you will finally Find me, and when you seek me with your heart, I will be found. by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I have given you. I will bring you back from exile. We need to be reminded, even as Christians, that God has promised to us promises that he will most definitely keep. We need to be reminded that God has promised to us a Savior, as he promised to Joseph concerning Mary, his pregnant virgin wife. He promises to her that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And God has kept this promise. As we'll begin studying tonight in First John, we'll see John speak about the fact that we have seen and we have touched and we have felt of this promise that has been kept by God. You see, we too once were in exile. We're not too different from these people leaving out of Judah. We too have been in exile, separated from God because of our sinfulness, living in spiritual darkness. But God, being faithful to his promises, as we can just summarize Ephesians 1 in this, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. He has given us redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. He has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. And he promises us in Romans 8 that nothing will separate us from his love. This is what we need to see when we look at Ezra chapter 1 is that this God is the same God who has made these promises to us. And he will keep these promises. And for those of us believers, that's where our hope is at. It's in the reality and in the fact that our God is the same promise-keeping God that kept his promises to the people of Judah. Every last one of them down to the T. As Christians, our faith rests in this fact. You see, our Faith in the gospel is a promise. It's a promise that God made to us in Genesis 3.15. Like we can go all the way back on our timeline and see how God has been keeping this sovereign promise for us this whole time. One of the beautiful means and primary reasons that God preserves his people for himself is to bring about the Messiah through these people as he has promised. So we see that God keeps his promises. Thirdly in this chapter, we see the faithfulness of God to preserve a people for himself and to himself. And these people will be marked out as his, not because, as I said earlier, their' clever ways and their pragmatic designs, but because the worship of God is central to their lives. Now this will be fleshed out in the coming chapters. I mean, in chapter two we're going to see I mean all of these specific people that come back. We see in chapter three this rebuilding of the temple. we see the centrality of worship in their lives, but we also see it right here. as I mentioned earlier, you may be here today and you're wanting to hear something from God. And Hope that you've heard of his sovereignty and his providence and his care and his faithfulness to keep his promises to you. But what about all this? What about the last part of this chapter? What about a list of pots and pans and bowls and utensils? What's God saying to us here? It's to be noted that we're early on in Ezra and Ezra doesn't come to Jerusalem until chapter 6. There's this 80 year gap between Ezra 1-1 and 6-1, if you will and then from chapter 7 to 10 is just one year what we begin to see in this chapter that's going to be fleshed out over the coming weeks is that god will always preserve a people for himself there will always be a church there will always be a people of god there will always be a remnant for his glory that's good for us to know and it's good for us to hear like the SBC convention this met this past week and all the reports are talking about the decline of the church, the decline of the church, the decline of the church. It's all we hear. God is saying that he is faithful to always have a church, to always have a people who will worship him. But not only that, God is particularly faithful to preserve the worship of himself by his people. We pick up in verse 6, if we will. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides, all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king, again, this Persian pagan king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord. That Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. If you look back over at Chronicles, just on the very next page from where you're at, you can see in verse 7 of chapter 36, that Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. You can look down in verse 10 and see, in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord. So we see Nebuchadnezzar seized from God's temple, these vessels that are used, these elements of worship that are used by God's people in bringing right and ordained worship to him. And he's moved them around in verse 18 of 36 and 2 Chronicles. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his, his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. So you would almost think as if all of these elements of worship that are being moved around by Nebuchadnezzar throughout Babylon, like, where are they? Well, it's good to know that God is sovereignly, controlling these things and it's good to know that in the midst of stirring up god's heart he causes for cyrus the persian king to have grace upon these people who are returning and he gives to them all of their elements of worship for the temple back to them it's difficult for us to understand this as we read this i mean literally we're thinking like they're traveling some great distance and they're bringing with them 5,400 pots and pans and forks and knives and spoons and censers and utensils, whatever it may be. And it's lost on us. Derek Kigner, in his small commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, writes this. From this prosaic inventory, it is left to us to picture what may have meant. To see the consecrated gold and silver brought out into the light of day. Every piece of it. A witness to God's sovereign care in the continuance of the covenant. The political kingdom has perished, but not the kingdom of the priest. The business-like transfer of articles counted out from one custodian to another may have been outwardly undramatic, but it was momentous to these people. Every single one of these 5,400 pieces that are counted out one by one speak of God's sovereignty to preserve a people to himself and to preserve his worship by those people. This shows that God cares about them, that he cares that they are to worship him properly. So here they go. They set out to Jerusalem from Babylon with all of these pots and pans and with this promise and with a solid understanding of God's faithfulness and What's the first thing that they do when they get back home? They build an altar, as we see in chapter 3, and they worship God. Now, they don't just get back home and say, well, man, we haven't worshipped God in Jerusalem in 70 years, so let's just do it however we want. They don't make that mistake. That They get back home to Jerusalem and they build an altar and they offer worship to God as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They go back to God's word for God's instruction on how to bring worship to him. And that's what they do. And not only that, they keep the feast of booze. And then, and then after we've begun some worship, we'll get to work. We'll lay foundations and we'll build a temple. But I want us to see is that central to the people of God is the worship of God. Two things that I think we see in this. First is that we are expected to live in such a way that we are distinguished from the world around us by our worship, devotion, and service to God. And secondly, as we see that God has preserved a people for himself, we are called to obedience to the word, to the worship of God, and to be a witness of God in this world. Yes, this is all great, and this is wonderful, and this is exciting. Like, like Ezra's going to be great study. But Israel was never the same, or Judah was never the same. Yes, God preserved this worship. Yes, he gave them all their pots and pans and bowls back and all their censers back. But the Ark of the Covenant did not return with them. Yes, a temple would be rebuilt, but it's not going to be Solomon's temple. There is a forever change that has been brought about to the people of Israel. It was brought about by God's wrath due to their idolatry and their unfaithfulness. Yes, God has kept his promise. But I think that what we see here, I agree with Derek Thomas who says of this, that there's there's something that changes here and it signals to us of something to come. And he makes the comment that Israel or Judah returns to Jerusalem more like a church than a nation. And there's been this change. It's bringing preparation for the coming of the Messiah to usher in the church. And what we see in this is that ultimately God's purposes with Israel are indeed God's purposes for the church. God preserves these people because by these people, God plans to bring about his Messiah. And so here we are this morning. We're no different, really, than these exiles returning in this new Exodus. Here they come journeying back to Jerusalem. And as we've been studying in Hebrews, we too are journeying, journeying, journeying. I can't even say that now. We are on a journey. <laughs> I'm not even gonna try it again. To a heavenly Jerusalem. In a sense, we, we join with them. Trusting in God's faithful promises to keep his word. Trusting that throughout history, God is sovereign over everything. Trusting that God is providentially governing creation to make these things come about. Like, there's no coincidence for our lives. Like, all of these things are caused by God's providence. The question for us is how are we marked? How are we marked? Are we trusting in this faithfulness of God? Are we trusting in the sovereignty of God, even in the smallest details? Are we trusting in the word of God? Are we obedient to it? Are we marked by our worship of God? That's a legitimate question in light of what we see in Ezra 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, the the book of Ezra. Are we marked by the worship of God? I find it fascinating that the lost and undone dying world around us knows far more about what we don't like and what we don't believe in and what we hate than what we do believe in and what we love and what we worship. And I find a problem with that. There's an issue there. Because I think that if the central mark of my life was the worship of God, the people around me would know a lot more about God than the things that I do not like or the things that I hate, or the things that I think are wrong. I think it would be changed if we were marked. It's a central figure. The centrality of our lives is the worship of God. So I want us to ponder these things this morning. Let us close in a word of prayer. Let us think on these things. And I, I hope that as we study through Ezra, that this time, this study will be fruitful. Let us pray. God, we do thank you for your word father we thank you for preserving it for us and giving it to us and God allowing for us to study from it and father we are thankful that this morning we were able to see so much truth of who you are god how you have orchestrated history to bring about your will not just to this point in 539 bc but even to this very day in this moment in this time god i pray that you would draw our hearts closer to you God, that you would encourage us to bring our worship before you. God, that what we've done here today would be acceptable to you, glorifying of you, exalting of Christ, and edifying to the saints. God, redeem our efforts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.